0: for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, well, we are starting a new series, The Person of Christ. Uh, I'm really kind of excited about this. Uh, we're going to focus on who is this person, Jesus. And this tagline, it says, the relational God in flesh or in the flesh. Uh, those two things are inseparable. They're both so key to understanding who Jesus is and who God is. Uh, Because Jesus, uh, the person of Jesus, was both incredibly relational, but he was also God in the flesh. Both of those things. If there's two things that you know about Jesus that you focus on, it would be those two things So the most important things to know about the person of Christ. He's incredibly relational, and he's God in the flesh. Um, We don't need to know more about God, we need to know God more. Um, sometimes we get that backwards. We don't need more information. We need more connection, more relationship. Again, our culture, we kind of, we thrive on information. We thrive on knowing about things. Uh, but God is not somebody to, uh, to know about. He's somebody to know personally. And so part of the motive of Jesus coming was we can experience that. Um, So this person of Jesus, uh, so key to know, too, that he was not just a great teacher, prophet, moral example, reflection of God, all those things that people might limit him to. He is God in the flesh, and we need to be reminded of that. It's so profound the more you think about that. The creator of the universe becoming one of us. (laughs) Hard to wrap your head around. Think of all the miracles Jesus did, but nothing is more significant than the miracle of God becoming human. Um, John 1.1. 1, 1. John, the disciple, starts his gospel with these words in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I mean, that's his first sentence. If you want to see it. I mean, his, his purpose of his gospel, he says, is that you might know Jesus. And this is his first line. And then he says in John 1, 14, later in that chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Clearly, he's talking about Jesus. And he's saying the word was with God in the beginning. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's that relationship part. God didn't just reveal himself. didn't show up in the sky. He became one of us, so we could know who he was and we would know that he is God in the flesh. Uh, another verse, really key verse, Colossians 1.15 says this, Now Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He existed before creation began, for it was through him that everything was made, whether spiritual or material, seen or unseen. Jesus didn't begin at his birth in Bethlehem. Jesus was there from the very beginning, and Scripture makes it very clear. He not only was Son of God in the sense of his presence here, but he was with God. Through Jesus, all things were created, all things seen or unseen, material, spiritual, Jesus. Um, So uh, that's what we get to do uh, in this series. Uh, If you want to know what God is like, which is probably the big question for people that don't know God... So, what's God really? How do you know what God is like? Well, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks of you, what God thinks of us, how He wants to treat us, look at Jesus. So that's what we're going to do in this series. Um, today, we're going to talk about uh, John two, story of Jesus changing water into wine at a wedding, and you may be familiar story, but. There's stuff in here that I just discovered the last uh, week or so. Kind of excited about why this is the first story, the first miracle that that Jesus uh, does uh, here. So I'm going to read the whole passage, John 2, 1 to 11. Then we're going to go back, kind of unpack, look uh, look at the story verse by verse and see what we can find out. So it starts this way. John 2, 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, but the servants, uh, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Well, there's your story. Um, Let's set the scene a little bit. First, it starts with this interesting phrase, on the third day. And I don't know about you, but I've read this story numerous times. And it wasn't until earlier this year That I got a total different take on that first line, the third day. What does that mean? I I used to think, well, this is probably the third day of Jesus' ministry. You know, day one he got his disciples; they wandered up to Galilee. He's invited to a wedding. This is the third day. I mean, that was my simple answer. Um, But then I discovered what the Jewish audience thinks of weddings and the term the third day, because in the Jewish culture they look at creation this way. They look at Genesis 1, the first day it says, God separated the light from the dark. And he said, and it was good. It was evening and morning the first day. Then it gets to the second day. God separates the water above from the water below. No blessing. It just ends. There was evening and morning day two. Then day three, God separates the water from the land and says, and it was good. And then he says in the same day, and then he separates or he produces vegetation in the land and the vegetation produces fruit of its own kind. uh, And he says, and it was good. So double blessing on day three. So the Jewish belief or the custom has always been, we should have weddings on day three because that's the day of double blessing. So if if that's true, this may be a long rabbit trail, but I think it's fascinating. Um, If it's true then this is happening on a Tuesday because the Sabbath is Saturday, Sunday's day one, Monday day two, Tuesday day three. Um, there you go, there's your setting. But this became personal to me uh, because our youngest son, Zach, got married in February. Uh, and I may have shared this before, but he got married on 2-22-22 on a Tuesday at 2 p.m. And you know what they had for reception? Taco Tuesday, that's right. My son's no dummy. He wanted to remember his wedding date. It's going to be always 2 22 That's when I got married. And so he was married on a Tuesday. And I just discovered this little third day thing about a month or two before. Uh, so at the reception at his Tuesday wedding, I just kind of mentioned that. I said, you know, how many people have been to a Tuesday wedding? Of course, nobody had been to a Tuesday wedding. And I said, well, in the Jewish culture, and I kind of explained the story, uh, and I said, So this is kind of cool. This is a Tuesday. We're uh, blah, blah, blah. Again, long rabbit trail. A guy from uh, uh, Ukraine was in the audience, came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, it is still true today. I uh, I grew up in Israel, and even today, most weddings happen on a Tuesday. So there you go. Wasn't that fascinating? That's all I got. Um, No, that was just a little rabbit trail. That was the very first line I just had to... Throw that out there. Um, well, <laughs> weddings in their day. A couple other little details to know as we unpack this story. Weddings in their day, well, our day, let's look at our day. Weddings in our day, I just went to one uh, last Monday. Odd again, Monday wedding. Who does that? Anyway, it was a wedding Monday. Um, it lasted for four or five hours, you know, kind of a typical. Maybe five, six, seven if you have a really long wedding, start earlier in the afternoon, may go to. That's a typical our wedding culture. In Jesus' day, weddings lasted for most of a week, usually a week-long celebration, seven days. So that's kind of important as we look at the details of this story to understand what's happening and kind of how things have progressed. Uh, So there's that. Uh, The other tidbit in there is that Jesus was invited. Jesus' mother was there. His disciples were invited. This is happening in Cana. Well, Cana is about eight miles from Nazareth. So this is happening. Kind of probably knew a lot of the people. Uh, this was kind of a village event. Probably a lot of people from a long ways around would come to this wedding. So it's a big, probably a big wedding reception. So there you go. Um, then I love this next line. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, "They are out of wine." That's all she says. Didn't say hey, Jesus, I got a job for you, or hey, Jesus, what do we do about it? He just, she just says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And uh, you, you just have to think about her motive. Why is she saying this to Jesus? Jesus knows when you get his response, it happens right away. He knows what she's thinking. But put yourself in Mary's shoes. 30 years. You know, she was visited 30 years before uh, by Gabriel, the angel, saying, you are going to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the, the promised one. And it tells us in those verses that he store, she stored these things up in her heart. And they've been stored there for 30 years. She's probably wondering, when are we going to get to the business of showing who you are? So here's a, kind of our first deal. You just say, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And he immediately, I mean, he didn't even wait for anything else. He just says... Woman, why do you bother me? It's it's not my time. My hour is not yet come. But then the next line, she turns the servant. Do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, she's she's plowing ahead. It's like, no, no, you're going to do this. And guess what? He does. He responds. Maybe just to honor. Maybe he hadn't planned on doing this miracle. Uh, my hour not yet come. It doesn't involve me. Uh, but he jumps right in and. and uh, and the story continues. So he's honoring his mother. Uh, well, then we have to look at what's Jesus' method, what's his motive in doing this miracle. Um, because, again, if this is his first miracle, if you're Jesus, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be really good. People are going to know who I am. Uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the superhero here. Everybody, here's my magic trick. You know, he does it. But he does it in secret. He does it in secret. The only people that know about this miracle are the servants, the disciples, and Jesus' mother. That's it. And I think that was very much intentional. Jesus didn't intend to do this miracle to draw attention to himself. He really did it to honor the party, honor the bridegroom. And that's what happened. The master of the banquet, the master of ceremonies, gets the wine, and he calls the bridegroom up and says, you know... Usually you bring out the best wine first and then when people have had too much to drink you bring out the cheap stuff. But you have saved the best to last. So who got honored? Who got acknowledged as the hero in the story? It's the bridegroom. He didn't even know what was going on. He had no idea. Oh thanks. I didn't know that happened. Uh, Maybe they were even unaware they were out of wine. Um, Anyway, that's Jesus' method there. Reminds me in some ways of, I mean, that same characteristic of Jesus. He's not there to promote himself. We talked about relationship, and I, if you just put that phrase in there, what does this have to do with relationship? When you look at stories of Jesus, well, you look at his his birth. That was done in secret as well. Again, you're the king of the universe. You created everything. You're going to make your appearance. You're going to be born on Earth, and he does it in private, in secret, in a stable. The only people that knew about that were Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, the lowest on the social rung, who were invited to know what was going on. They got to hear the heavenly choir. They got to know who this, that God has visited us. Um, that's just the way Jesus chooses to do things. Um, I will say this. When you read stories in the gospel, it's almost you almost learn more by what isn't said, or what could have happened. Uh, I've just gotten in the habit of asking, you know, why did Jesus do that that way? What was he thinking? What was his motive? If we ask those questions, why didn't he do it this way? Uh, It tells us a lot about who God is, who Jesus is. And it usually points back to us, usually because of relationship. Um, So ask that question about the nativity. Why did Jesus come as a baby? I mean, think about that. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. He could have done everything he intended to do if he came on the scene as a 30-year-old man, which is essentially what he did. I mean, he was in secret till he was 30. So what's with the 30 years? What's with the 30 years? We only get one picture when he's 12 years old uh, about him going to the temple and getting lost from his family, confronting the religious leaders. That's it. 30 years. Again, Why? I think it's because he's incredibly relational. He wants to know what it's like to be you, to be me. What's it like to grow up? What's it like? I mean, just think about how humiliating it would be. He could have come and just appeared to Caesar as a 12 foot tall guy with a host of angels, they would have gotten the message I'm God in the flesh. But he comes, he humiliates himself, essentially. God of the universe being born, being totally dependent on his mother for survival, for food, to survive. Um, He wanted to know what it's like to grow up the way you and I do, uh, to be totally human for that period of time. He wanted to know what it was like to go through teenage years, to go through puberty, to go through all that you and I have gone through, just so he can say, or or just so he can't have us say. But Jesus, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to experience what I have, the family I grew up in. You don't know what it's like to lose a parent. You don't know what it's like to have kids to betray you. You don't know what it's like to feel like you're, nobody understands you. You don't know what it's like to be betrayed. Uh, and you could extend that. You don't know what it's like to be tortured, abused, accused of things you never did. Essentially, you don't know what it's like to die. You don't know what it's like to die as an innocent person the way that Jesus did. Because he wants to be able to say, I, I do, I have, I've experienced everything you have. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. So that he could say, I know what it's like. That's why I spent 30 years uh, when I in secret, because I wanted to relate to you. I want to know you intimately. I want to be able to say, not only was I there, but I am there with you. I know what you're going through. Um, so that reveals uh, the person of Jesus. Um, okay, back to the story. Again, why did he do things the way he did? He's got six stone water pots. I mean, I just love how he didn't even bat an eye. I just, hey, Jesus, do it the Or servants, do what Jesus tells you to do, and then he looks at the six stone water jars, and and uh, each holding between twenty and thirty gallons. They're used for Jewish ceremonial washing. So essentially, I don't know how many people were there—maybe three hundred. I don't know. Throw a number out there. Decent-sized group of people. Those six stone water pots were probably put at the doors so people could wash their hands and feet as they came in to cleanse themselves don't know if they did it several times a day or every day they came or whether it was just constant. But imagine the condition of that water. So again, it's not what Jesus did. It's what he didn't do. What does he say? He tells the servants, he goes, go fill them up. Didn't say go clean them out. Didn't say empty that filth, scrub it out, put clean water in it, then I can use it. He just said fill them up. And then he told the servants, take your cup and dip it in the water and take it to the masters of the banquet. And the servants are probably going, are you serious? I mean, I I know where this water came from. I know what this water is. But they did. They obeyed. They took the water. I don't know whether it got transformed as they're dipping, as they're walking, as they're handing it. Uh, Could have happened to any one of those stages. But they knew where it came from. All they know is now it's red, really cruddy water. That's in their mind. But they hand it to the master of the banquet. And he says, as we just said, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. And he gives honor to the bridegroom. But the servants know. I mean, imagine the surprise on the servant's face. In their mind going, are you kidding me? He took that and made it that? Um, incredible. Uh, that's that's the story of the wedding. So what does it tell us about Jesus? Uh, I, I, I just put down four things. One is just what we talked about. Uh, Jesus desires to transform us, and he wants to transform us just as we are. Jesus never says, hey, clean up your jar. Uh, clean it out. Make it as clean as possible. Then maybe I can use you. Then maybe I can transform you. Then maybe I can do something in your life. No, he says, you know, I think he have smiles and says, no, no. Fill it up. I'll take it just the way it is. I'll make something absolutely extraordinary out of something ordinary. That's his mode. That's his method. Um, well, number two, that's number one. Number two is he always gives us the best. I don't know where we ever get to think uh, the thought that somehow God is holding out on us, Jesus is holding out on us. He always gives us the best. Uh, John 10.10 10 puts it this way. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life, have it to the full. I came to give them the best life, not just mediocre, not just better than it was. His thought for us is always the best, uh, the fullest we could have. Um, That's number one. Connected to that, uh, third thing is abundance. God always gives us in abundance, more than we deserve more than we need sometimes. It's true of this story. Um, You know, it, It, I mean, again, six stone water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each, let's just make it 25, do the simple math. Six of them, that's 150 gallons. He could have done what he needed to do with one jar. That's enough. Now, fill them all up. 150 gallons, you do the math, about three and a half bottles of wine. It's about 500 incredibly choice bottles of wine that he's presenting to honor the bridegroom at a wedding that's probably five days into it, where people have had too much to drink, that's the nature of God. We looked at it last week with Sarah taking 60 pounds of flour to welcome three strangers. Let's make a hundred and some. Of them. I know you don't need that much, but I want you to know how generous I am. I want to be toward you. Um, so I'm giving you 500 bottles of choice wine. Um, Ephesians 3.20, I love this, puts it this way. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or even imagine according to his power at work within us. He doesn't want to give us just enough to get by. He wants to give us more than we could even ask for, more than we could even imagine. That's his mindset toward us. Do we get that? Do we believe that? Um, that's That's his attitude. And finally, he gives without condition and again, day five, hey they're out of wine. well, they should be they've been drinking quite a bit. It's day five yeah. sorry <laughs> or you know, oh I've, by the way, I've heard this, I have to say this because when I grew up, I heard this story for the first time back in a more conservative era. Uh, many people would talk about this story as well, it wasn't really wine. it was you know it was watered down, it was great good grape juice, you know it wasn't well. All you have to do is look at the words of the master of the banquet. Um, Bring out the best for last, even though people have had too much to drink. You know, Jesus gives in our life without condition, even knowing that we're going to abuse it, even knowing that at times we're not going to honor what he does in our life. Uh, We're going to waste, we're going to abuse what he gives us. Uh, I just think that's fascinating. Um, He didn't say to the crowd, Okay, well, clearly you—you 150. You're over here. You get nothing. You've had too much. You guys, I got a great gift for you. Here's a here's a glass of fine wine that you will really enjoy after you do a little sobriety test. Make sure. He without condition. I don't know where we think that God gives us great blessings only because, only if we will, only in response to, only if we'll clean up our jar. Um, he just lavishes us with blessing. That's his nature. Uh, knowing that we'll abuse it. Even, I mean, I just look at my life. God's given me good health. How well do I steward that? You know, do I abuse myself too much? Yeah, I don't take care, I don't exercise the way I should. I don't honor what, how God has blessed me in that way. Or finances. We live in the richest country in the world, without a doubt. Uh, regardless of your position financially, I'll just take a bold step and say, Whatever you are in America, you would be in the top five, six, seven percent in the world in terms of blessing. How well do we honor that? Does it give us more than we need? Like, yeah, clearly in some cases. Um, do we abuse it? Do we take it for granted? Yeah, we do doesn 't stop him from blessing us in the hopes that we 'll respond in the way he wants us to um, Grace, how about god 's grace in our life? <laughs> God gives so much more grace than I deserve, so much more. Sometimes you might even ask, really? God forgave that person for what they did? (laughs) God wants to forgive them? You go, yeah, He forgave you. Um, And guess what? He continues to do it day after day because we abuse His grace. We continue to mess up. It doesn't stop Him from giving us grace. Grace is, by definition, is getting what you don't deserve. <laughs> that's what grace is. So where do we think, oh, God forgives me because I did this. God just forgives us, uh, even though we take it for granted or abuse it. Well, are <clears throat> uh, that's the story, but I want to finish with another story as we move to communion. Because um, I, I really just discovered a week or so ago how well this story fits into communion. Um, The idea of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding is so symbolic of what we are about to do with communion. Um, If you look at scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, imagery of marriage, husband, wife, Israel is God's bride, Israel is God's wife, and even to the point of saying, you have committed adultery by following other gods. I mean, they're using all sorts of imagery. Solomon and all of his... uh, Imagery of love and passion, and there's just something about that. Why? Because marriage is the closest thing to the most intimate relationship we can have to him. We get a taste of what it means to be connected to a relational God. Um, So I'm going to share this, the custom of being engaged in those days. Uh, Father and son would travel together to the home of the intended bride and the son would offer a cup of wine to his intended bride. And if she took the cup and drank it, it would say, I'm committing my life to you. My future's in your hands. And he would typically say at that point, I will not drink again of that cup until we're back in my father's house. And then he and the father would go back to the father's house. He'd prepare a room for his bride, maybe an addition, maybe a wing, whatever it was, uh, but he'd prepare a place for his bride. may take weeks, may take months. Nobody gave the go-ahead except the father. Only the father knew when it was time to go get the bride. Finally one day he'd say, it's ready, it's go get your bride. And he would go with his wedding party, pick up the bride and her wedding party, bring them back to the father's house and they'd have a week-long wedding celebration. That was what it was like to be married in Jesus' day. Well, on the night of communion. Now, the Last Supper, here's what Jesus says to his disciples just before taking communion. John fourteen two and 3. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. This whole thing, this whole cup and wedding and communion is really god's invitation to us it's his wedding proposal to us his church take this cup commit yourself to me remember what i've done and we'll be back in my father's house and we'll celebrate together thanks for checking out this message from real life You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.